Well, it's a real pleasure to be with you this morning. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Bill Heerman. I'm an elder here at Trinity. Our uh, pastor, Matt McCullough, is out of town and will be back next week. But for this morning, we're going to be continuing in John chapter 9. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. For those of you who are visiting with us, we have been studying the book of John here at Trinity since the beginning of this year. And today, pick up right where we left off in John chapter 9, and we're returning to a familiar theme again this morning. We're returning to the theme of light. The theme of light has been an important one in the book of John. In fact, it started off in the very first chapter. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, and the word was with God, and the Word was God. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the theme of light picks up again in chapter 3, and it comes back in chapter 5. And then in chapter 8, where we were last time, it culminates with the remarkable claim of Jesus when he says, I am the light of the world. And so today, when we pick the story back up in John chapter 9, we're going to continue thinking about the theme of Jesus as the light of the world. And I'll tell you, the story that we're going to read today is one of power. And it is one of grace. And it helps us take the important theological truth that Jesus is the light of the world. It helps us apply that directly to our own personal experience. It does that not just by telling us who Jesus is, but by, but by showing it to us in the form of a miracle. You know, sometimes I think it's hard to take big theological truths and relate them directly to our lives. When Jesus says that he is the light of the world, that is a beautiful thing. It's steeped in the imagery of the entire Bible. It's even an image that transcends culture and time. But I think it's hard to answer the question What does that have to do with me? Today's story in John chapter 9 shows us the power and the light of Jesus. It illustrates how that power and light intersect with our reality. And because of it, we're going to come to understand that big theological truth in a new, intimate, and personal way. So I think the question that we need to be asking ourselves as we read today that's going to drive our time thinking about this text, is what does it mean for you that Jesus is the light of the world? What does it mean for you that Jesus is the light of the world? Now, our passage today is a lengthy one. It starts out with a miracle where Jesus heals a blind man. And then there are several conversations that drive the narrative of the text. The first is between Jesus and his disciples. It really frames the miracle that we're about to see. The second set of conversations is between this man who receives his sight and his community, trying to process what's happened. And then the final conversation is between Jesus and the man who is healed and the Pharisees, where we come to see what we really were supposed to see through this whole passage. So I'm going to read the whole thing today, because actually it's the most important thing that I'm going to say all morning. So... Get comfortable, stand in honor of God's word, and we are going to read John chapter 9 together.
as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but it is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, 
I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is God's word. You may be seated. Now you may have gathered that our passage today is all about seeing. Jesus heals a blind man. And the blind man sees, and the Pharisees don't. And the way that our passage helps us understand what it means for us that Jesus is the light of the world is by addressing the question, how can we see the light of the world? If Jesus is the light of the world, then how can we see him? Maybe put another way, what does it mean to have spiritual sight? How do we get a sense of spiritual sight? How does it change the way we look at ourselves and the way we look at the world? Now, to, start, to start to consider that question, I want us actually to imagine what it would look like to gain any new sense. What if you were suddenly able to see something you hadn't before or hear something that you hadn't been able to hear? Wouldn't it drastically change the way that you interpret the world? I don't think gaining spiritual sight is any different. When we can see something we couldn't before, it changes us. Now, lest the sci-fi fans in the congregation get too excited, we are not going to spend any time what it would look like to have x-ray vision. Instead, I want us to think about what it would look like to fall in love. Because I'll tell you, getting spiritual sight to see Jesus clearly is an awful lot like falling in love. You see, falling in love requires a change in our perspective. Falling in love means being drawn to something that before you noticed it, at best, you would have ignored it, and at worst, you would have hated it. Falling in love means seeing a person differently than you did before. Now, the best example I can think of is some dear friends of ours who now have been married for five or six years, but before they started dating, this guy was very interested in this girl, and this girl was very uninterested in this guy. In fact, we have this great picture of them at a party before they started dating where they're standing next to each other where he is really smiling and sort of leaning in a little bit and she has this look of disdain on her face. (laughs) Get me out of here, right? I tell you, after going to that party, it came as a real shock to me that they started dating a few weeks after that. I don't know what happened, but something must have changed her heart. Right? It was clear for me that her love for this man was based on a new perspective, a new way of looking him at him that she didn't have in that picture. You know, I think fundamentally all love shares that same experience. In fact, many a romantic comedy is based on the premise that best friends would never consider romance until they saw each other differently. Falling in love means seeing someone differently than you did before. And seeing the light of Jesus is like falling in love. To gain spiritual sight, to believe in Jesus, you have to undergo a change in your perspective. It's about seeing Jesus' sacrifice on the cross as beautiful. And seeing your sin means that you need that sacrifice. So as we consider today what it looks like to gain spiritual sight, we're going to come to understand three important things. The first is that believing in Jesus requires spiritual 
sight. The second is that spiritual sight changes our perspective of ourselves. And the third is that we are going to rejoice in the good news that Jesus came to give you spiritual sight. So, as we return to the passage this morning, I'll remind you that it's a series of conversations that drive the narrative. And I want to take them one at a time. The first conversation is between Jesus and his disciples. They're walking, and they see a man who's blind. And the disciples ask Jesus, was it that this man sinned or his parents sinned that he was born blind? What they're trying to understand is the relationship between sin and suffering. And Jesus' answer is both direct and decisive. He says, neither is the case. Look to verse 3. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, there are whole sections of the Bible that explain to us the connection between sin and suffering. And in this passage this morning, this idea is really more of a side point. But it's a beautiful illustration of the truth. And so I thought we could take just a minute to try and understand it. You see, the point is that we know that sin in general causes suffering in general. But that link breaks down when we try to get too personal. It breaks down when we try and say this particular suffering is because of this particular sin. It just doesn't work that way. You see, Jesus answered to his disciples when they asked him about it. It fits with the whole answer of the rest of the Bible. Suffering is mysterious. There's a lot to it. But what is always true is that God can turn it to good for his power. For the purposes of suffering can be greater than we can see. And God can use suffering for a greater purpose. And in this case, in our story today, that is exactly what Jesus had in mind. Instead of giving his disciples a detailed answer about how sin relates to suffering, Jesus said, this man was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. You see, the first conversation is meant to frame for us what we're about to read. We're about to read about Jesus giving a man sight. And Jesus says, what you're about to see is a work of God. What you're about to witness is a display of God's power. So friends, pay attention. Now, after the first conversation, the story picks back up in verse 6. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Jesus spits to make the dirt into mud. And he takes the mud and he puts it on the man's eyes. And he said, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. And he comes back seeing. Now, before we get on to the rest of the passage, I want us to take a minute and consider how miraculous this really is. You see, in this period of human history, blindness would have been a common thing. Many people would have become blind during their lives from things like infections or even things like cataracts that modern medicine can quickly take care of today. But this man was born blind. What you might not realize is that his eyes wouldn't have been the only thing that needed healing for him to be able to see. You see, when a person is blind from birth, the part of the brain, the part of the brain that's able to interpret the patterns of light and color and shapes that the eyes transmit, that part of the brain doesn't develop. In fact, as a person ages and there's no signal from the eyes to the brain, 
that part of the brain gets smaller and smaller because it isn't being used. So for a person to be blind from birth to all of a sudden have his eyes start working, that wouldn't have been good enough for him to be able to see. In this instance, Jesus heals the man more completely than that, more completely than any doctor ever could. For Jesus not only fixes the man's eyes, which, by the way, are incredibly complex structures, but he also gives this man's brain the ability to interpret what he's seeing in an instant. In one moment, Jesus fixes his eyes and makes it so that his brain doesn't have to go through the six months of development that it takes an infant to get used to their eyes or the several years that it takes a child to understand what they're seeing. This man goes, he washes, and he comes back seeing. Friends, surely this is the creator of all things. Let's just take a moment and consider that. Now, we've said before in our study of John that miracles aren't only about displays of raw power. Although I think in this case we can say we've surely seen the creator at work. Miracles in John are meant to point us to something that is true about Jesus. They're a sign for us about a greater truth. And the question we have to ask then is what are we meant to understand about ourselves? What are we meant to understand about Jesus? What does healing the blind man have to do with us? And I just want to connect the dots very clearly so you all can go back to sleep if you'd like. The miracle is meant to show us that our natural condition is one of blindness and that to believe in Jesus, he has to give you spiritual sight. Our natural spiritual condition is one of blindness. And to believe in Jesus, he has to give you spiritual sight. Now the reason I say that is that restoring this man's physical sight is not the only miracle that happens in our story. It's not the only time that Jesus displays his authority and his power as the creator. The other miracle is this man's spiritual transformation. Let's trace it together, how his view of Jesus changes. At first, in verse 11, the man who receives his sight calls Jesus a man. He says, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. Then in verse 17, the man who had received his sight says that Jesus is from God. He says, he is a prophet. Then finally, in verse 38, the blind man who's talking with Jesus, says, Lord, I believe, and he falls down and he worships him. I mean, what a transformation. This man started the day both blind in terms of physical sight and his spiritual sight. And when Jesus is finished with him, he can see the world around him and he can see clearly that Jesus is God. And so the man's physical blindness mirrors his spiritual blindness. And the miracle of his physical sight mirrors the miracle of spiritual sight. And so from that, I think we can gain a couple of key implications. The first is all of us are blind from birth. Our natural spiritual condition is one of spiritual blindness where we can't see the truth of who Jesus is or why we need him. And that means if I ever have any hope of seeing the light, I need Jesus to work a miracle in me so that I can see. And it's exactly the same kind of miracle that he had to work in this man to make him see. It's a miracle of new creation that I need to see and love Jesus. Now, 
These two things are really good news for me. Let me tell you why. The first is that my spiritual sight doesn't depend on me. There was nothing that was good in me, and the fact that I have sight is because God gave it to me. I was so blind in my sin before I knew Jesus that I had no hope of opening my eyes. I was like a blind man from birth. And the reason this is good news for me is that my sight doesn't depend on me. I can't screw it up. For any of you who know me, that's really good news. Nothing that I can do will earn my spiritual sight. I have it, if I have it. It's because God created it anew in me. And the other reason that this is really good news is that nobody is beyond God saving them. Nobody is beyond God saving them. I think all of us probably have people in our lives that we pray would believe in Jesus. And the good news is since all of us were blind from birth in the first place, it's going to take the same kind of saving miracle that saved you to save them. And this is great news because God can open their eyes to see differently. No matter how blind you think they are. So then, to summarize the first point, our natural spiritual condition is one of blindness. And to see and believe in Jesus, he has to give you spiritual sight. The second point is that spiritual sight changes our perspective of ourselves. Much like we said at the beginning, any time anyone gains a new sense, it causes their perspective to change. And when we gain spiritual sight, it causes our perspective of ourselves to change. Now to illustrate the point, I want to use an example from the medical field. I want us to think about the example of germs. You know, a few hundred years ago, people didn't even know about germs. We didn't know they existed. We couldn't see them. And so things that we take for granted today didn't happen. For example, doctors didn't wash their hands between taking care of patients. Doctors didn't wash their hands between doing things like autopsies and delivering babies, something that would be unconscionable and something that caused a lot of death in a lot of children. But we couldn't blame them for it. They couldn't see the germs. They didn't know they were there. But everything changed when we, saw, when we got microscopes, right? When we could see the germs, when we could see that there was something that causing disease, it changed everything. Once we had our sight opened to their reality, everything changed. And now I don't touch anybody without washing my hands like three times. Just kidding. A new sense opens your eyes to see things in a new way. It changes your perspective. And in the same way that germs changed the medical field, a newly acquired spiritual sight changes our perspective. It certainly will change our perspective on who Jesus is. And we'll come back to that in a minute. But it also changes our perspective on who we are. To understand that, I want to pick the story where we left it, just after the man is given new sight by Jesus, so that we can see how spiritual sight changes our perspective. When we pick up the story, you know there's a catch. Jesus has healed the man on the Sabbath. Now, if we've learned anything from our study of John up to this point, We know that the Jewish leaders are not going to respond well to that. It's definitely going to ruffle their feathers. In fact, you should remember that this isn't the first time Jesus has healed on the Sabbath. 
In John chapter 5, Jesus heals a man who couldn't walk on the Sabbath. And the Jewish leaders, they try to kill him for it. So we know it's about to get interesting now that Jesus has healed on the Sabbath again. When we come to a second set of conversations that follow in sequence between the man who's received his sight and his community. The first is between the man who received his sight and his neighbors. He comes back from the pool of Siloam, able to see. Can you imagine that scene? He runs back into town, probably running, and saying, Hey, I can see! And the people are kind of looking at him. Is that the guy who used to sit and beg? No, it couldn't be him. He's blind. The man then gives an account of his miracle. He says, Jesus healed me. I think a little awestruck and probably a little confused, they take him to the Pharisees, who are their religious leaders, who are supposed to know about things like this. They say, what what do you think about this? In the second conversation then between the Pharisees and the man, it starts to heat up a little bit. In verse 19, Jesus gives his account again. He says, Jesus put mud on my eyes and I washed, now I see. The Pharisees then start to have a disagreement. Some of them say, he can't be from God. He broke the Sabbath. Others say, he has to be from God. How could a man do something like this if he weren't from God? So out of their division, they ask the man. They say, who do you think he is? And in that moment, the man, I think, gives the highest level of attribution he knows to give. He says, he is a prophet. It's his way of saying, he is from God. Now, the third conversation, I think, makes sense. The Pharisees call the man's parents in. They say, well, we need some corroborating evidence before we believe that this man was really blind and can see. So they call his parents and they say, is this your son? Was he really blind from birth? Parents say, yes, he was blind from birth and now he sees. But it's in this conversation that we start to understand what's really at stake. You see, in verse 22 we start to see that this isn't really an impartial fact-finding conversation. It's really more of an inquisition from the Pharisees. Verse 22 says that that his parents were afraid. His parents were afraid because the Jews had already said, if someone says that Jesus is Christ, we're going to kick him out of the synagogue. That would have been a big deal, to be kicked out of the synagogue. That was the center of their culture. That is where people went for social gatherings. That is how people supported themselves. It would have been a huge deal financially for them. And so his parents pass on making any judgment about the origin of his healing. They say, ask him. He can tell you. So the Pharisees then call the man back. And we get this wonderfully ironic conversation where this man outwits and out-argues the Pharisees. They say, give God the glory. Don't give it to this man who calls himself Jesus. We know he's a sinner. I love what he says next. He says, I don't know anything about whether he's a sinner. I do know this. I couldn't see, and now I can. And so in a wonderfully ironic way, he does exactly what they asked him to do. He gives glory to God for his healing, which is not in the way that they wanted him to. You see, instead of renouncing Jesus, He glorifies Jesus, and this gets the Pharisees fired up. Tell us again how he healed you. Probably now trying to get him to contradict himself and what he said before. I think the man sees right through it. He says, I already told you what happened. 
Is it because you want to be Jesus' disciples that you want me to tell you again? And they get really angry this time. Uh, It really is the climax of the story. In verse 28, it says, They reviled him. That means to speak abusively. They're probably yelling at him now in a totally condescending way, and they are saying, you are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. They're saying, we don't need Jesus. We have everything we need. Now, the conversation still isn't over. The man makes one more stand and says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. The Pharisees then start to insult him. They say, you were blind in utter sin. Or excuse me, you were born in utter sin. That is probably here a reference to his blindness. You were born in utter sin. And what's, again, ironic about that is that they're now admitting that he was right, that he was blind and that now he sees. And then they did exactly what they said they were going to do and they kicked him out of the temple. What I think we're meant to see from this series of conversations is the contrast. The contrast between how the man responds to the miracle and how the Pharisees respond to the miracle. And I think to summarize the difference in their responses, we look again at that last conversation. The man who's given sight believes that Jesus has come from God. In verse 33 he says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And whereas he believes that Jesus is from God, the Pharisees, In verse 28, say, they reviled him. We are disciples of Moses. You see, the Pharisees, who had studied the law of God, who had studied the scriptures and claimed to be disciples of Moses, didn't think they needed Jesus. They thought they had everything they needed already. So the point of this contrast is that when we're given spiritual sight, our perspective changes, and we realize that we need Jesus. We realize that the glory that comes from man is not enough. Now let me say just a little bit more about what I mean here. To really focus in on the contrast, we need to get to the heart of what the Pharisees were saying. You see, they're angry. They're angry because Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. It's actually probably not anything new for them. They sort of were really glad when other people broke the Sabbath because it meant that they would look really good for keeping the Sabbath. So why do they get so fired up that the Sabbath is broken? Well, I think it's because probably a very few people broke the Sabbath and claimed to be God. And nobody broke the Sabbath and backed it up with the kind of miracle that Jesus just performed. And so Jesus' healing on the Sabbath actually threatens their entire way of looking at the world. And so they summarize their anger actually in this statement, we are disciples of Moses. That connection may not be immediately clear. How, does, how do those two things relate? We are disciples of Moses, and to understand it, we have to remember that Jesus has already dealt with this. Back in John chapter 5, when he healed the man who couldn't walk on the Sabbath, the same argument from the Pharisees came up, and he dealt with it then. Jesus tells us that the Pharisees are seeking glory from other people instead of seeking glory from God. They sought the praise and the respect of those around them more than the praise and the respect of God. So when they say, we are disciples of Moses, what they're really saying is, we have searched the scriptures. And our law-keeping is our way to show how good we are. Look how much better we are than other people. 
They were looking for the praise of people by following the laws of Moses and by lauding their knowledge of the laws of the Old Testament over people to make themselves look good. See, the Pharisees gained their identity and their value by keeping all of the rules externally. They didn't think their hearts needed any changing, especially from Jesus. Now, because I think this point is so important, I want to take an example from another portion of the Bible to illustrate the point. If you have your Bible, you can turn there now. It's Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Maybe you'll remember the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector praying. I think it captures the attitude that we're seeing here from the Pharisees really well. It starts in verse 9 of chapter 18. It says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. Maybe you could even add here, I keep the Sabbath. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisees, in their claim to be disciples of Moses, are revealing the nature of their heart. They're saying, along with the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18, we don't need a Savior. We trust in ourselves as righteous. We aren't like other people. We aren't sinners. We are perfect because we keep the rules. To quote from John chapter 12, they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So when we look at the response of the Pharisees who claim that they're disciples of Moses, we know that spiritual blindness is a condition of the heart where people love the glory that comes from other people more than they love the glory of God. And that we learn when you get spiritual sight to believe in Jesus, our perspective of ourself changes so that we love the glory that comes from God more than the glory that comes from man. We get spiritual sight and we see ourselves as sinners, as people who need help. We see ourselves like the tax collector who was praying in the synagogue, unwilling to even look to heaven and praying for mercy. But there are people who remain blind, They dig their heels in the ground and say, I'm not going anywhere. I don't need Jesus. I am enough for myself. And the real problem is, those people don't know they're blind. Now, as we move into the last section of the text, a conversation between Jesus, the man, and the Pharisees, we're going to see the reality of judgment. But we're also going to rejoice in the good news that Jesus has come for the express purpose of giving us spiritual sight. Jesus comes back to find the man after he's been banished from the synagogue. And Jesus asks asks the man, do you believe in the Son of Man? That's a a term that refers, is an Old Testament reference that refers to Jesus and it often uh, carries with it signs of judgment. The man says, who is that? And Jesus says, you have seen him. And it's here where the man completes his transformation from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight. He now worships Jesus as God. I wonder if you remember the response of the Pharisees at the end of chapter 8 
when Jesus claimed to be God? They picked up stones to try and kill him. Here, the man worships. And I think the point is now clear. Who really sees? The Pharisees or the man who was born blind? And it's here where Jesus lays it on the line for us. In fact, this one verse, verse 39, captures the whole thing. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. I think we need to take that sentence apart because we can't afford to misinterpret it. First, let's start with the easiest to understand, the middle part of it. I came into this world so that those who do not see may see. That's what we've been talking about this entire time, right? That Jesus came to give spiritual sight that we might recognize our natural sinful state and believe in him. Right? That we might desire the glory that comes from God instead of the glory that comes from man. So that middle part, I think we're okay with. The last part says, I came into the world that those who see may become blind. Now that one is a little more confusing. Jesus is using a play on words here. In the first instance, he's saying, I came into the world so that those who were spiritually blind might get spiritual sight. But now he's saying, I came also into the world so that those people who think they can see without me, the world will know that they are really blind. Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world and I am the true measure of sight and blindness. And anybody who thinks they can see without me, they're the ones who are blind. That point becomes a little more clear as Jesus finishes the conversation with the Pharisees. They're overhearing what he's saying with the man, and they say, are we also blind? Are you crazy? Jesus says, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But because you say we see, your guilt remains. That part of the sentence that Jesus says, because you say we see, is the key to understanding it. He means because you think you can see. Because you think you can see without me. Because you're relying on yourself for sight. Because you don't realize that you're blind. Because of those things, your guilt will remain. Jesus came into the world so that those who see may become blind. That means that Jesus came into the world to define true sight and true blindness. And that those who think they can see without Jesus... Jesus shows them, in fact, they're the blind ones. So then, we come back to the first part of verse 39 that says, For judgment I came into this world. And while I think most of us were probably okay with the part about Jesus coming to give sight to the blind, and maybe we were a little uncomfortable with the fact that Jesus was defining the true sense of reality of sight and blindness, I think we're all pretty uncomfortable with the statement that Jesus came into the world for judgment. And what's worse, he tells the Pharisees that because they refuse to acknowledge their need of Jesus, that their guilt will remain. He hands them a guilty verdict. And I don't think we can afford to let let that pass by us. I don't want to sweep it under the rug. It's a reality of Christianity that offends some, that some people don't want to think about. 
Jesus came to save people. He came to die so that we might live. He came to be the light of the world so that we might receive the spiritual sight. But there are some people who refuse to believe in him. There are some people who, when they hear his words and see his miracles, pick up stones to kill him. They don't think they need Jesus. They think they only need themselves, and there will be judgment for those people. Their guilt will remain. You know, particularly in our culture, judgment is one of those really difficult pills to swallow. Right? In modern-day America, I think actually judgment is perhaps the greatest of social offenses. Right? Just think about how upset you get when you feel like you're being unfairly judged. Can't you hear yourself saying, what right do you have to judge me? We're not okay with judgment. And what's particularly challenging in this passage is that we don't get the theology lesson here. We don't get the explanation of why judgment. We don't get the explanation that God's, just, God's judgment is just because he does have the authority to judge, and he does have the power to judge, and he does have the holiness to judge. Jesus doesn't explain that to us here. We have to look to other parts of the Bible. If you're interested, Romans 1 might be a good place to start. But what we do get in this passage is the dramatization of the theology, the illustration of the reality. reality. And the reality is that people who reject Jesus will receive judgment. And that should land on us hard. There are real consequences for refusing Jesus. It should cause us to tremble. But it shouldn't cause us to despair. It shouldn't cause us to despair because in the book of John, the concept of judgment is always tied to the, pro- to the concept of saving grace. You see, judgment is a product of Jesus' coming, not the purpose of his coming. What I mean is that when Jesus comes into the world, he defines light and darkness. He defines sight and blindness. And so he judges what is true and what is not true. But he didn't come to condemn those who are already in darkness. Jesus came to give sight to the blind. And just like in verse 39, the two ideas of judgment and saving grace are always tied together in the book of John. The concept is most clearly articulated in John chapter 12, and we'll come there in a few weeks. I'm just going to read one verse to you so you know I'm not making it up. Verse 46. I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Friends, Jesus is the light of the world. And the objective truth that he defines as light and darkness is the judgment. But Jesus came so that he might save the world, that he might rescue the world from darkness. He came so that the world would have spiritual sight. There's one more thing we can gather from this passage. He didn't just come to save the world. He came to save you. Look back to that first conversation with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus tells them that the purpose of this man being born blind was so that the power of God might be revealed in him. The power of God is displayed in this man when he receives both his physical and his spiritual sight. And I'll tell you what I see there. I see that the power of God is for salvation of people. 
Jesus has made the claim that he is the light of the world. And in that, we should hear lots of good things. We should hear he's perfect. He's good. By him, we can see the light of the truth. But rather than being a diffuse, abstract principle, we see in our passage today that the power of Jesus is meant to apply the beauty and the revealing nature of the the light into the lives of individual people. Jesus' glory intersects with our lives and his life becomes our reality. You see, the light of Jesus is not only intensely bright, it's also intensely personal. And right there is something you won't find in any other religion in the world. Jesus came as a light of the world so that you might have your eyes opened. He came to die for you. So how do we get that light? How do you get spiritual sight? How do you have your eyes opened? You pray to God in heaven like the tax collector from Luke chapter 18. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You pray to God in heaven like David from Psalm 36 that Seth preached on a few weeks ago. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. And when he opens your eyes, you will respond like a man who is born blind. You will see him and you will worship him. Friends, Jesus is the light of the world and he came into the world that you might have spiritual sight, that you might desire and love the glory that comes from God more than the glory of man. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we need to see you. We so desperately long to see the truth of who you are and to taste it, to know it in our personal experience. God, we, we think like the Pharisees that we're, that we're not blind. And I pray for us this morning that you would help us to see the reality of who we are, that we are sinners in desperate need of your mercy. God, I pray that you would help us to begin to begin to believe. Open our eyes. Heal us like you healed the blind man. And help us to walk in the light of who you are. It's in your name we pray. Amen.